Good evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, last chapter. Proverbs chapter 31. Now, chapter 31 is, in fact, instruction given to King Lemuel by his mother. As we get into the study this evening, Lemuel is widely believed to be none other than King Solomon himself. And his name means for God. That's what Lemuel means in Hebrew, for God. And it's the idea of that of being dedicated for God or dedicated to God. Solomon was given the name Jedidiah, uh, which means beloved by God, by the Lord through Nathan. So he had more than one name already, and many times names simply describe some element or aspect of that person's character. So here we have for God, we know that he was also called beloved by God. Uh, up until this point, he has shared, that is Solomon has shared 29 chapters within the book of Proverbs. So 29 out of 31, uh, we believe, are actually written by Solomon. And many of these Proverbs were taught to him by his father David, but if it's true that King Lemuel is in fact Solomon, then he now shares with us Proverbs that were taught to him by his mother, who, as you probably are aware, was Bathsheba. Let's get right into the word. Let's open in prayer and see what the Lord would speak to us this evening. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this evening that we have to be in your word, and we thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for our children and their being blessed together for fellowship activities and even a time of devotion, just the the time that the, the kids here at Calvary Chapel have together. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us this wonderful book. We thank you for these studies that we've had over the last few months and We just ask now that you would show us the truth of this chapter. Touch our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start out by reading in verse 1 that the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. That is something of the word of God that his mother taught him. So I believe this is Solomon. And if so, then we're looking at things that Bathsheba taught her son Solomon. Now, some may feel that this adulteress, and that's exactly what she was, had no place to teach anyone anything because of her sin. Uh, Some people would say that. Some people would say things like that today, that God can't use sinners, or at least the kind of sinners we don't like very much, you know, or or we have a problem with. But the, the important truth is that we're all sinners, amen? So if God can't use sinners, then he can't use anyone. So... This woman, Bathsheba, ultimately became the royal queen mother among all of David's wives. And David wasn't alone in his repentance of his sin. She repented as well. So keep that in mind that God can work through sinners when sinners repent. I do believe that an unrepentant sinner is hindered in their being used by God. Doesn't mean God can't use them. Certainly doesn't mean God can't work in their life. Certainly doesn't mean God can't speak to them and through them. But I do believe when we have unrepented sin, that is sin in our lives that we're refusing to repent of or confess or unwilling to change, 
not struggling with it, but or let's put it this way. Not that they're struggling with it, but that they're not struggling with it. They're just sort of giving themselves over to it. I do believe that that becomes a hindrance. But remember, God works by his grace. So even the person caught up in sin can still be used by God, should God so choose to use them. But there are some people that just get caught up in this, we have to earn our right to be used by God. And I don't believe that at all. In fact, I would say that there is absolutely no point in my life, throughout my lifetime, where God has worked through my life, okay, because I earned the right to be used by God. I don't think that's ever happened. (laughs) I do believe that, though, I have been able to repent of sin and live my life for God to the extent that God could use me in mighty ways as a result of my repentance. But I never earned the right, and neither of you ever earned the right to be used by God. That's by God's grace. All is by grace. Amen? So keep that in mind. Very important. But sin will hinder you. It will hinder your prayers. It'll hinder your relationships. It'll hinder your relationship with God. But when you repent of sin, the Bible talks about him not remembering our sins anymore. Casting them as far as the east is from the west. At the bottom of the sea. Hiding them behind his back. So you you need to understand that, that God accepts our confession and our repentance and forgives us. And he moves on. We, we tend to get bogged down, but he moves on from our past and works in and through our lives. So here's this Bathsheba. Again, she had repented. Now the royal queen mother among all of David's wives, she becomes a trusted advisor and an ally to her son Solomon after David's death. And she was one of the few, me- uh, few women mentioned in the royal genealogy of Christ in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 6. So God did work through this woman despite her sin. So let's just keep that in mind. God is a gracious God. Amen? Now, you may feel that you're not worthy, and that's because you're not. But what does worthy have to do with being used by God or being blessed by God? It's all by grace. Now, let's look at the words that this mother shares with her son. Lemuel's mother shares words of wisdom in verses 2 through 9. And I'm going to read just verses uh, 2 and 3 to start. This is from a mother to a son concerning women. Concerning women. We read, O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. Now that's really, really interesting because this is a mom pleading with her son, listen, just don't waste your, your, your life on chasing after women. And you could say the same, you know, don't waste your life chasing after men for the ladies. Or don't waste your life chasing after some sexual experience, some romantic experience, trying to fill your life in this way. See, she loved him dearly. She considered him an answer to her prayers. In fact, in verse 2, where it says, son of my vows, right? You see that? Uh, it could also be, in translated, also be translated, the answer to my prayers. The answer to my prayers. So she considered him an answer to her prayers. And Bathsheba had lost her first son, the result of God's judgment. There were consequences to the sin of Bathsheba and David. She may have thought that she would never have children or never conceive again, and she ultimately had at least four sons, but Solomon was the first to live. So you can see that in just the way she speaks to him. She recognized that chasing after women ruined kings. Gee, I wonder where she had witnessed that. 
I mean, Bathsheba had herself been a part of the ruin of David's house through adultery. You know, have you ever noticed that when you want to learn something, you can learn from the person who actually experienced it? Right? Not from a book, but you learn from the person that actually experienced it. And there are people in our lives who have learned by making mistakes, and they've repented. And when they share, there's power in their testimony. You can learn from that person in a way you can't learn from someone who hasn't made those mistakes. She had witnessed how David's lust severely weakened his rule and hurt his family. I doubt that she appreciated sharing her husband with so many other women either. But unfortunately for Solomon, he didn't heed his mother's counsel. So moms, kids don't always listen. That's just the way it is. True for dads as well. They don't always listen, right? So concerning women, she gave him a warning. Now concerning alcohol, in verses 4 through 7. By the way, these are the things that will certainly get you in trouble. It starts with chasing after women in a very unhealthy way, but now alcohol. When we look at verse 4, he said, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all of the oppressed of their rights. Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. It's a very interesting perspective. I mean, because, listen, the truth is even a small amount of alcohol has an effect on the body. Apart from the, apart from the, the, the health of your body being affected by alcohol, you're putting a toxin in your body. You're putting a poison in your body. By the way, sugar is, is not much better. But, so if you combine sugar and alcohol, it's really the, the, the worst of, of anything you can drink. In fact, I was reading an article this week on one of my news sites. They were talking about the worst things you can drink, the worst drinks you can put in your body. Those energy drinks, very bad for you. Uh, sweet alcoholic drinks, very bad for you. Most of the drinks on the list had sugar in them. And like get a sweetened iced tea and those coffee drinks, frappuccinos and things. Very, very bad for you. But alcohol, alcohol. Well, for a king, alcohol can be a real problem. She understood that those with great responsibility needed to stay sober. That's what we're learning for, or learning about here. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer. So alcohol, you might think a little is not so bad, but even a little impairs you in some way. You've seen those commercials, buzzed driving is drunk driving. You've seen those commercials, I'm, I'm sure. And the truth is, even a little affects you in some way. So the warning from this mom is, don't do it at all. And I have heard pastor after pastor after church leader after missionary go on and on about how they have the freedom to drink alcohol. And truthfully, drinking something with alcohol in it isn't just a sin. You know, not, just, not some kind of a sin just because it has alcohol in it. But you need to think through. And one of the reasons I think the Bible talks about this a lot in terms of leadership is you're impaired. You are impaired when you drink alcohol, which means regardless of the sin side of it, you're not at your best. And being a leader, especially being a king, you have to be at your best all the time. All the time, really. Uh, you really don't have the freedom to let your guard down or let your hair down. It just doesn't work that way. So here we have a woman pleading with her son. She understood that those with great responsibility needed to stay sober. 
By the way, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 10, the Levites, the priests, those that serve in the temple or the tabernacle, were told to abstain from alcohol. Why? They had a serious responsibility. Incidentally, that encouragement in Leviticus 10 is given right after Nadad and Abihu are put to death by the Lord. And the inference, the suggestion is that they were drunk when they offered strange fire. That seems to be the case. So you don't want to be serving the Lord impaired in any way. Certainly not in any way. Oh, and by the way, uh, there are people that will say, well, I don't drink, I just smoke marijuana, it's legal now, you know, that kind of stuff. Same goes for pot, same goes for drugs, same goes, even to be honest with you, same goes for anything, ups, downs, whatever. Being influenced by a substance is, is never really a good thing for you, health-wise, but also spiritually. Now, she knew this, and so, as I said, priests under the Old Covenant were told to abstain when they were on duty, but they were pretty much always priests. So I think they, they, they pretty much stayed away from it. Elders and deacons under the New Covenant, according to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, talks about them not being given to wine. Some interpret that as abstain completely. Some say not drinking too much. Uh, I would say that if you're in a leadership position, it's probably best to abstain altogether. And if you have a problem with it, or you've had a problem with it, most certainly a good thing to abstain from alcohol. I personally don't drink, so just to let you know that. Uh, anyway, another thing, women leaders in the church, in, in Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, they're told as well not to be given to wine. So in general, it comes with a leadership position to not be impaired as you're leading. She felt that wine and beer could be used medicinally. She did. And I want to say that, that you need to recognize that what she's saying, you know, that's how she feels, and it is included in the Word of God. Uh, wine and beer could be used medicinally for those suffering physically. Now, that brings us to a topic. If you were not uh, in a situation where you had the benefit of anesthesia or some type of pain reliever, uh, you could see why you might want to have a glass of whiskey before some procedure, right? You could understand how having that as a medicine might make sense, right? They, they used to do this before we had a lot of these things. They would drink some whiskey to kind of inebriate themselves so they didn't feel the pain, especially if you go back into, like, surgeries of, you know, the 1800s. I mean, my goodness, it's gory stuff. But, yeah, you can understand that. But that also opens up a, a conversation, and uh, I... I personally am not a big fan of legalized marijuana or any drugs recreationally used. Uh, I, I think it, regardless of whether it's legal, I think it's a mistake. As I say, alcohol is legal and I don't partake. But I also want to say that if a drug, a medicine is prescribed and it's helpful in dealing with a health condition, you have to put that in a separate category. You really do. And, you know, there's some people that feel that marijuana is very helpful. Uh, THC, whatever's in the marijuana, is very helpful with dealing with certain conditions, certain health conditions. And I don't, I don't dispute that. I'm not against medicinal uses of what are sometimes recreational drugs. And I think this scripture makes that clear. There's a time where it might make sense. But hanging out in your basement playing video games is not medicinal use. That's recreational use. And I think it's a big mistake. It's ruining our culture. It's ru ruining a generation of kids. It's disturbing their brain patterns and the way they think and their health. And I think it's a very stupid thing for a society to embrace recreational drug use as much as recreational drinking. Enough of that. But she felt that for those suffering, it makes sense. 
Ironically, the poor would be delivered from their misery if the king stayed sober and upright. So if the king stayed sober, then the people don't need to drink because their needs are met. So let the king stay sober and let the people not have to drink to forget their problems, I guess is a good way to put it. And if you notice, when there's problems in the economy and there's problems in our culture and our society, people drink more. Why would that be? To forget their problems. So good leaders need to not only not drink, but they need to not give other people reasons to drink. And that's not hard to imagine. So that's really good counsel from uh, this woman here, probably or at least possibly Bathsheba. Now, that's concerning women, concerning alcohol. Now, concerning justice, verses 8 and 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I think this is wonderful. You're talking about social justice, really. Speaking up for those that can't speak for themselves. The first group of people in our society that I think of is the unborn. They certainly cannot speak for themselves. So there's an example. Uh, For the rights of all who are destitute, those who are impoverished and are poor. We should be concerned about the rights of those who are disenfranchised, underserved in our society. Those that don't have the same advantages as the middle class or the upper class. We should be concerned. Uh, We should speak up, and as a king, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So I I think it's, it's fair to say that we should be concerned about social justice. We should be. But we should also be concerned about uh, the social problems, the immorality. We should be concerned about righteousness, living an upright life. All of these things are important, and there are sadly some who feel that social justice isn't important in the church. Of course it is. From, from a biblical worldview, it's very important. But how do we approach it? How do we approach it? So all good stuff, very important and practical lessons. This woman understood that the king had a great responsibility of representing the powerless. So those of you who are more powerful, maybe at work, or those of you who have more influence in your culture or in society, you actually have a great responsibility to represent those that don't, especially our elected officials. They have more responsibility than anyone to represent the powerless. And she encouraged them to secure equal justice for all people. I do believe in equal justice. Sadly, you don't see it much. What you see is a two-tiered justice system of... uh, justice system being used and being weaponized for political purposes, people who are wealthy and influential uh, getting a slap on the wrist, and then people who are poor and don't have money to pay for lawyers suffering more than those that have those resources. Or we have this new thing now where if you're part of a protected group, a class, minority, you seem to be able to get away with more crimes than others. Uh, that that's supposed to be some type of reparation for the sins of our nation in the past, where, okay, well, you know, the person is a certain racial group, so we're going to let them off easy uh, instead of hold them accountable. Justice should be blind, right? Lady Justice wears a blindfold. But nowadays, it's not. It's not. It's very sad to see what our justice system has become. So those are the three things that she starts by mentioning. Careful about how you deal with women. That is, and it's not that women are the problem. Let's just say the opposite sex, you know, and your lust. Uh, and then also how you deal with alcohol or those things that would impair you or inebriate you. That would include recreational drugs. And then justice, which would be fairness, rightness, uprightness. So she starts with that. And that is all really good stuff. And then in verse 10, we get to a poem. And it's a poem. This is the part of this chapter you're probably most familiar with. Now, this is an acrostic poem, 
uh, of the virtuous wife. And it's given by this woman who was not all that virtuous at one point in her life. But that's not to say that she doesn't know something of what it means to be a virtuous wife. God redeems people. He restores people. He's done that for all of us. So we have to show the grace to the person who had a really bad start maybe in life because later on they become a source of wisdom. And if it is Bathsheba who's writing this, by all means she has some great wisdom to share. She's already shared some great wisdom. Uh, There aren't many portions of scripture that are written by women in the Bible. So this is one you might want to look at a little bit more closely to get a different perspective. Well, these 21 verses constitute a regular alphabetical poem with two lines to a letter, except in chapter 31, verse 15, there uh, there isn't two lines to a, a letter. But virtually all of the previous 29 chapters are written to instruct young men. This entire chapter is written to instruct young men regarding finding a virtuous wife. So it also becomes a powerful resource for women as they seek to follow her example. So it's beneficial to men and women. That's the point I'm trying to make. But especially as an example to women and also as an example to men of what type of woman they should choose to spend their lives with. Okay? So let's look first. Actually, let me read the whole poem, and then we'll go back over. That's probably the best way to address this. Verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find... She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for the tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grabs the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. And she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with dignity, or excuse me, she's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. So there's the poem, an acrostic poem, an alphabetical poem like A is for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat, D is for dog. But it goes through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and it goes through this poem. So that's sort of the form that they would use when they would do poems. There are several psalms that are that are written in the book of Psalms that in fact are acrostics. And this is one of those, not in the Psalms, but in the Proverbs. But let's start by looking at verses uh, 10 through 12. It says, a wife of noble character who can find she is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. That is, she is valued and appreciated by her husband. 
It is implied that one must seek for and find such a wife. Remember, this is a mother speaking to her son. So to a son, this this is the kind of woman you want to find. Rather than being helpless and in need of a man, this woman inspires confidence. She's an incredible blessing to the man that finds her. So far from thinking that the Bible would say that, you know, women should just be subservient and and not strong, this, this leads with she should be strong. I think that's important to point out. Verses 13 through 15, she faithfully works within the home, meeting her family's needs. Look at verse 13. She selects wool and flax and works eat with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. That's a metaphor or simile. She gets up while it is still dark, and she provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. Ladies, you all have servant girls, right, at home, right? Well, it was a different society. (laughs) A different society. We have Walmart, you know, so. But uh, verses 13 through 15 tell us she knows a trade. She has important and practical skills. She knows how to cook and works hard to feed and manage her household. Verses 16 through 18 tell us that she diligently works. Are you ready for this? Outside the home. What? Yeah. Yeah, she works outside the home succeeding in her business ventures. Look at verses 16 through 18. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task, and she sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. That says that she works long hours. She works hard. She has the confidence and the ability to start a new business. It's difficult. Not everyone can do that. She's not afraid to work hard. She's certainly up to the challenge. She has the energy and the business savvy to be successful. See, I think it's so important to read this because so many people have a, a, a wrong or false understanding of the role of a woman in, in, first of all, the Jewish society, but also Christian society, Christian culture. Uh, I don't know where people get this idea that uh, women aren't encouraged to be successful in business and work outside the home. It's simply not true. Uh, But, you know, this is what happens when men are in control, you know. Many times they put women down. They push women down. And that's how it is in the Middle East. That's how it is throughout much of the world. Thankfully, it's not that bad here in the United States anymore. But I think we need to look to the Bible for the truth, Uh, not, excuse me for saying this, uh, conservative family values, so-called, you know. Uh, But I I, I like what this chapter has to say. Also, she generously shares with those who are in need. Look at verse 19. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grabs the spindle with her fingers. Now, that's speaking of of spinning or or, um, sewing. Uh, They have to create their thread, you know. You start with the distaff and the spindle. You have to create your thread. You don't go to the store, buy thread, and make a garment. You have to start with the thread. (laughs) So then when you have the thread, then you can begin to mend things and make things. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. The only way she can do that is because she has something to give them, right? She uses her abilities and her practical skills to bless others. That's so important. She doesn't put the potential for additional profit in business over charity. That's a a good lesson. She doesn't put the potential for additional profit in business over charity. That's good for all of us to remember. The charity should come before an abundance of profitability. You know, certainly you need to break even, 
But charity needs to be a part of what you do. In fact, we know what the Bible says. If you, you sow, you, you reap, right? If you give generously, you'll, right, you'll receive. It, it's, it's so important to understand that. So if you have a successful business, you need to sow generously, and you'll also reap generously. And she does. Verses 21 through 23 says she carefully provides for the needs of her family and her own needs as well. Now, in this culture, it was primarily the role of the woman to run the household. That's still true to a great deal in many households today. Not all, but many. And that means she's the boss at home. She's making sure things go the way they're supposed to go for the family. And so we read in verse 21, when it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. By the way, scarlet was an expensive material. Uh, It was dyed, and uh, generally the best quality material was dyed. So that's basically saying they have really nice things to wear. Uh, And it goes on to say she makes coverings for her bed, and she's clothed in fine linen and purple, which, of course, speaks of wealth. It speaks of... uh, doing very well. It it speaks of of having the resources to purchase clothing and material to make clothing. Notice it says her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Now, here we see she carefully provides for the needs of her family. She doesn't procrastinate, but rather she solves problems before they become a crisis. She doesn't wait for the snow to come to make sure her family has warm clothing. She gets out in front of that, you know? I mean, that's why when you go to the store, you go to the mall or whatever, I mean, typically you're not buying sandals at this time of year in this area, right? You're buying winter coats, sweaters, right? You got to be out in front of that. You can't, you know, wait. You, you got to have these clothing. Uh, th- we had a very cold day on Sunday. And uh, I, I actually, you know, I think I wore long sleeves. You know, I don't, I like short sleeves, but, you know, it was, it was cold. But you've got to be prepared. You've got you to be able to use foresight to make sure your family has what you need. You can't just get up on one Sunday and say, oh, nobody has any clothes that fit them that are you know, long sleeves. Oh, I forgot to get the kids' coats. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You've got to have those things. Although one of the little kids left a coat. We, we had it in the office. I don't know uh, when they left it here, but there's a little coat in there. I'm thinking, who goes home without their coat on a day like today? Little kids. They'll go home without their shoes. Okay, so that's just the way it is. Um, anyway, she's not ashamed to enjoy nice things or to have nice clothing to wear. Linen, purple, fine linen, those are nice things. Uh, her behavior only increases the reputation of her husband outside the home. So nobody says to the husband, oh, your, your wife, you, you need to tell her to stay home. You know, you, you're not the boss of the house. You know, you're not the king of your castle. Rather, it says that her husband is respected for the way she lives at the city gate, which was the center of life in a city, a city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. So that's important to recognize. Now, verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. So she properly manages her business priorities outside the home. That is, she takes care of her family first, giving priority to their needs, but then she uses her spare time to bring additional income into the home. So she makes these garments, maybe she makes a few extra garments, and she sells what she doesn't need. She lives a life of wisdom and character. It's so important to see this in verses 25 through 27. She is clothed with strength and dignity. So we've been speaking of her external clothing, 
But now that metaphor is taken a degree further. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. It's just an interesting way to say it. Go on. It goes on to say, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The bread of idleness. That is, you're sitting around eating but not getting anything done. That's pretty a pretty graphic description there. The bread of idleness, you know. Just <laughs> but that's not true of this woman. She receives the respect because she lives a life of wisdom and character. She is as intelligent and noble as she is elegantly dressed. That's what verse 25 tells us. She's clothed with strength and dignity. So she is as intelligent and noble as she is elegantly dressed. She's a wise teacher that diligently teaches by example, which, by the way, I've learned a long time ago, you can only teach by example. You can tell people stuff, but you can only teach them by example. How you live, that, that speaks so much louder than what you say. And certainly she's a good example, for it says she speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. And as we said, she watches over the affairs of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Verses 28 through 29, we see she does receive the respect and praise of her family which she's worthy of. Verse 28, her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. So receiving that, that praise, uh, it's earned. She, she's done something to deserve that, and her family recognizes that. Both her children and her husband verbally praise her, which is good. Her character and her actions are impressive when they're compared to some others. And not that it's a foot race, but She's really head and shoulders above the rest. And her family communicates that truth. Finally, in verses 30 through 31, she fears the Lord and reaps the result of a life well lived. Now, you can apply this to, to, to men as well. It's not just only women that can take this good example, but it's, it's specifically targeted towards men looking for the right kind of woman and women being the right kind of woman. We see in verse, uh, verses 30 to 31, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Now, many men are enticed by a woman's charm. That's that charisma, that charm, uh, the ability that some women have more than others, but women have this ability to sort of charm, flirt, get men's attention. I, and a lot of it doesn't always happen to, to be the result of what they look like. It's just certain character, a certain ability they have uh, to get men's attention. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about charm. And many men are enticed by a woman's charm. But it only hides the truth. Charm hides the truth of a person's character. It's designed to get someone's attention and it's not always honest. It's not always true. It's not always sincere. Many men are enticed by a woman's charm. And many men are captured by a woman's beauty. And we understand that. We get that. But beauty doesn't last forever. And that's true. Being handsome doesn't last forever either. You know, looks are fleeting. That's the point of what's being said here. Beauty is fleeting. It is. 
So if that's what attracts you, if charm and beauty are what attract you as a man, you're really, you're looking in the wrong place. I know, I know there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, maybe single and they're looking for a particular person. Uh, many times it has to do with that person's ability to be charming. And there's nothing wrong with charm. It's just that that shouldn't be all there is to that person. And beauty is nice. Being handsome, very nice. But there should be more to a person than a pretty face, right? Should be. I mean, it's okay if, you know, what is it Pastor Chuck used to say? He used to say, a good, a good look and a good cook. He used to say something like that, you know, which is to- totally chauvinistic to say. I, he said it, I didn't say it. But um, many men are captured by a woman's beauty. But again, it doesn't last forever. Too few men seek a woman that truly fears the Lord. Way too few men. That seems to be somewhere on the list for Christian men, just not at the top. And it really should be the most important thing. Anyway, a woman like this gains a good reputation by being a godly and virtuous woman. And so we have this acrostic poem of the virtuous wife. And a chapter, as we've said, which was written by a mom speaking to her son about what type of woman he should look to marry. And it also, again, gives women today an opportunity to see the gold standard. Again, you can apply some of what was written to that culture today and see that it, it's, a, it's a tall order to fill, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard to, to live up to the ideals of Scripture, but that is the ideal that women have in the Scripture in terms of a description of character, specifically being a mother and being a, a, a wife and, and a, a homemaker. That, that's the idea there. Now, I, I think someone shared this with me a long time ago, Apparently, there was a series of T-shirts that were being sold to men that said something like, I'm looking for a Proverbs 31 woman. Apparently, there was a, and I I think that's a little bold. I don't know that I would wear that shirt, but I'm looking for a Proverbs 31 woman. (laughs) Is that supposed to be like a pickup line? I don't know. But apparently someone got wise and made a shirt for women that said, I'm looking for a Proverbs 1 through 30 man. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. There is so much good stuff in this chapter. So many good lessons, some wisdom. And uh, we really want to not only apply that to our hearts, but put that into our minds as to what's the most important thing regarding the character of women. Peter has something to say about this. The scriptures talk about it, but this chapter gives us a really good understanding and great insight. And Lord, I pray for all the ladies in our fellowship that they would seek to be the women that you've called them to be. But I also pray for the men, especially those who are single, that they would look for women like this to be the men that you've called them to be. And Lord, we thank you. And it's because of your great gift to us that we can even have these conversations. For, Lord, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, made a way where there was no way. You rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven, and you promised to come again to judge the living and the dead. And it's the truth of your word that sustains us and the hope of the gospel that I just shared. It helps us to realize that we can, like Bathsheba, we can repent 
of our sins. We can turn toward you and away from sin. We can confess our sins and be made right and cleansed and purified of all unrighteousness. And this is only possible because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. So may all of us remember that truth, that a changed life, a redeemed life, a restored life is the result of repentance. And repentance can only happen because you came and died for us and rose again. Lord, we thank you for this study. We pray that you continue to bless us this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.